And hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 17 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. And his disciples asked him saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are able to read it and share it together in this place. Give us your spirit today that we might be directed into truth. Deliver us from every distraction. Deliver us from every error, anything that's not helpful. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. The ride home from vacation is always more tedious and boring than the ride to vacation. The long drive home from vacation is not as enjoyable as the ride out because the drive toward your vacation destination is full of hope and excitement and anticipation of all the things you're going to get to do or maybe all the things you don't have to do on vacation. You're leaving your works your worries, your problems in the rearview mirror, you're going to go somewhere else to escape all of those, all those problems for a few days. Maybe you get to leave your laptop at home. Maybe you uh, get to not answer phone calls for a few days. You can put those off. You can put off thinking about pressing difficulties. And, and as you leave home and you head out, you feel lighter and lighter and lighter every mile that, that goes by. But as you drive home several days later, the weight of all those things you left behind start to close in on you and begin to press you again. You start making lists of the things you have to do, appointments you need to keep, repairs that have to be made, conversations to be had. The drive home is never as much fun as the drive out to vacation because on the way home, you're back to normal life and the problems you left at home are waiting for you. They're there, right on the doorstep as soon as you get home. That's something of the mood of the second half of Matthew chapter 17. As we've been studying through Matthew's gospel over the last few weeks, we've seen uh, Jesus has been at the top of Mount Hermon, the top of the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James and John. But now he's coming down with these three men. They are coming down from the place where Peter would have been content to stay forever, who wouldn't want to camp out up there on the mountain, far from demanding crowds, far from criticizing Pharisees, far from crosses and other threats. Just you and your closest friends and a glorified Jesus, and maybe, I don't know, Moses and Elijah might pop by from time to time. Let's just put up some makeshift tents and hang out there forever. At the top of this mountain, the apostles uh, may never have felt closer to each other. They may never have felt closer to Jesus or to their heavenly father, or, or maybe had never had a clearer sense of who Jesus was than they did at the top of the mountain. This is a, a, a major life event for all of them. And yet, of course, they couldn't stay up there. Jesus staying at the top of the mountain was not the reason why he was sent. And that's not how the world is saved. That's not how the kingdom grows. So this pulling away from normal life was temporary 
And now it's time to get back to work. And so on the way down the mountain, they have a little theological debate. It's over eschatology, obviously. That's what all the debates start with eschatology and, and goes from there. They're having a little eschatological debate on the way down the mountain. And at the bottom of the mountain, there's this gut-wrenching crisis over a demon-possessed boy and the feckless disciples who can't do anything for him. And then before the chapter's over, we're talking about taxes. Is there more a mundane, a more tedious topic than taxes. No, thank you. I'd rather stay up at the top of the mountain and completely avoid all of this hassle. But that's not possible. Here we are walking down the mountain with Jesus and his three closest friends down from this amazingly glorious experience back to real life. That's where Matthew 17 puts us. So as I said, they're talking as they're walking down the mountain. Now, these apostles are trusting that Jesus is the Messiah. They've seen him reflect the glory of the Father. They've heard the Father's voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So they've got that figured out and sorted out, but they're still a little confused on the prophetic timeline their assumptions about Messiah and how all this fits together, how they've developed certain assumptions about Messiah their whole life. In Mark's gospel, we read that the disciples here are bickering a little bit on this, on this occasion, disagreeing over what Jesus could have possibly meant by the word resurrection. So in Matthew's gospel, they're bickering and they're debating, and they ask Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Lord, help us straighten this out. This is confusing. Now, over these last few chapters, you may have noticed that the prophet Elijah's name has come up repeatedly. He's referenced six times in just the last two chapters. He only shows up two other times in Matthew's entire gospel. There's a concentration of Elijah uh, information here in these chapters. And then Elijah himself shows up at the top of the mountain with Moses when Jesus is transfigured. According to Peter, as you heard in our lectionary reading this morning, some people have been saying that Jesus is Elijah. Jesus is Elijah reincarnated. Jesus is Elijah returned. Why would anybody assume that? Well, remember that Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament, he didn't have a normal death. He didn't die in his bed. He wasn't executed by King Ahab. He was taken up in God's fiery cloud by those angelic horsemen. So the thought was maybe God whisked Elijah away and preserved him in some safe spot to bring him back, to bring Elijah physically back at the right time. And part of the reason they thought this is because of how they were reading the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last prophet that we have in the Hebrew scriptures. And in Malachi, Yahweh says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, there Malachi says it. I am sending Elijah. God says, I'm sending Elijah. And then in another place in Malachi, here's what we read. I'm going to read the uh, longer passage here from Malachi. Listen closely to what Malachi says. And this is the Lord speaking through Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they might offer to Yahweh an offering in righteousness. So their expectation is that before Messiah comes, before the Lord comes back to his temple to set everything straight, before he comes to judge the wicked, Elijah, the messenger, must come first. That's the timeline. So for the scribes who reject Jesus, one of the ways that they can deny that Jesus is the Messiah is that they point out to everybody, hey, look, I mean, this guy is doing some really incredible things, some things we can't explain. Um, Maybe he's doing it by the power of a demon, I'm not sure, and they're uh, raising all kinds of accusations about him. But look, they say, the Bible says Elijah comes first. Elijah comes before the Messiah, and we don't see Elijah, so Jesus can't be the Messiah. Or, at best, maybe, in some way, Jesus is Elijah. Jesus is the forerunner, um, but we kind of doubt that. The jury's still out on that because the forerunner of Messiah brings judgment to the wicked, and here he is bringing judgment to us. And that doesn't make sense at all. So uh, they they have this great error in understanding who Jesus was and, and what's going on. And part of their error was that they were expecting the reappearance of Elijah the Tishbite. In fact, the, the literal re-embodiment or reincarnation of Elijah, the Tishbite, the hairy prophet from the Old Testament. But remember, Elijah was not whisked away by God's fiery chariot to a safe place to hang out for several centuries, waiting until God needed him again. I'm inclined to believe that Elijah was burned up by that fiery cloud and taken to his rest from there. In the same way, remember, Moses didn't leave any remains behind. And curiously, both Moses and Elijah show up at the Mount of Transfiguration. I'll leave you to ponder all of that and what that means. But the scribes' expectation that Elijah himself was supposed to show up, that was throwing them off. Now, what is the key to unlocking all of this? What's the key to understanding this? Well, remember when the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah, Zechariah the father of John the Baptist, Gabriel shows up to Zechariah in the temple and Gabriel tells Zechariah that he's going to have a son and your son John is going to turn many to the Lord and he's going to go before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In so many words, Gabriel says to Zechariah, your son John is going to be the Elijah that Malachi told us about. So the correct reading of Malachi's prophecy must be then that the one who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, who comes before Messiah, is John. John is the new Elijah. And and any careful reader of the Bible would be able to see that this kind of thing happens all the time. Um, Moses is the new Noah, right? Moses is the new Noah who shepherds God's people through the watery judgment. Solomon is the new Moses, the the new builder of a sanctuary on earth for for Yahweh. So um, God does this all the time. He he moves us from glory to glory and gives us a greater version of someone who has already come. So only the most thick-headed reader would insist, oh no, it's got to be Elijah himself. That's what Malachi says. Elijah himself must return. And that's the controversy that the disciples are wrestling with. Well, Jesus answers their question and says, you know what? The scribes are right. 
Elijah does come before Messiah, that's right, and oh yes, by the way, Elijah has come. They didn't recognize him, they rejected him, his head ended up on a platter, but yes, Elijah has already been here, and likewise, that means Messiah is here now, and he also, Messiah is also about to suffer at their hands, which shows us that these scribes, these experts in Bible prophecy have misinterpreted all of it. They're not receiving their deliverers. They're not receiving the ones Yahweh is sending to them to save them, but they're abusing the ones that they are looking for. Well, finally, the disciples put it all together and they say, oh, okay, yes, so John the Baptist was the Elijah that Malachi promised. They get this all straightened out on the way down the mountain, and then when they get down to the bottom of the mountain, there's this crowd waiting on them together with the other nine disciples. Jesus has pulled these men, his, pulled his disciples away to Caesarea Philippi, away to Mount Hermon to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with them to, to get them away, but the crowds have caught up and the crowds are waiting there when Jesus and Peter and James and John come to the bottom of the mountain. So we're gonna pick up in verse 14 of Matthew 17. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your little faith, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, when Moses came down from the mountain, remember Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he found his brother Aaron leading the people in idolatry and faithlessness and perverse behavior. Perverse just means twisted, it means distorted. Um, and, and Aaron is, is leading the people in idolatry. Now when Jesus comes down the mountain, he too finds his brothers, the disciples, leading uh, the, the people in faithlessness and perversion. And as, as soon as the crowds see Jesus, a man pushes his way to the front, falling down on his knees, and he cries out for mercy for his son he, because he says he is epileptic. Some of your translations may say epileptic. The Greek word under that is literally moonstruck. We have a similar term for this. We call it lunacy. Uh, luna means moon, and lunacy means uh, moon sickness. You see, the, the ancients thought that, that maybe some forms of insanity were tied to the phases of the moon. And we look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. That's, that's silly. But, but you see that, that that diagnosis is a good example of how we grasp for answers when we're faced with the unexplainable. We're, we're looking for something, anything to blame. This boy, this boy is suffering. He throws himself into the water. He throws himself into the fire. He has these fits. What is it? What is causing it? It's gotta be something. Is it the bread? Is it the air? Uh, is, it, is it in the water? Maybe it's the moon, you know, a little bit of confirmation bias. You know, he seems to be worse when there's a full moon and he seems to get better when the moon is waning. Um, and so we assign it this, this diagnosis. It's, it's, he's moonstruck, he's, he's a lunatic. 
Um, and we find that Jesus gets straight to the bottom of the problem. Jesus ignores this silly diagnosis. It, Jesus knows that the boy's problem is spiritual. And so Jesus immediately rebukes the demon that is in him. But when this father first approaches Jesus, he's exasperated. I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't cure him. Literally, he says they didn't have the therapy he needed. Well, here's a good question. Did the apostles have the ability to do something about this? Did Jesus give them the authority over demons? Well, in Matthew's gospel back in chapter 10, he calls the 12 and he gives them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of diseases and all kinds of sickness. And then he explicitly commissions them to go out and heal the sick, uh, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out demons. And then in Mark's gospel, they go out from there and they cast out many demons and they anoint with oil many who are sick and they heal them. So Jesus has given them the authority over the demons. He has told them to go cast out demons and they have exercised this authority. They've demonstrated that they can do it. But for some reason now, it's not working. They're ineffective. Has Jesus revoked their ability to do this? What is happening? Well, it's obvious that Jesus is righteously frustrated with their impotence. He says, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? He says, you don't believe. And you've, had, you've got this twisted, distorted understanding of what we're doing here. And, and not only that, but this kind of thing keeps happening. The fact that he has to continually correct the same species of unbelief, the same species of faithlessness, it's wearisome to him. And Jesus says, how long am I going to have to bear this? And then, of course, Jesus immediately rebukes the demon. It comes out, and the boy was cured from that very hour. Jesus did in an instant what they couldn't do. Why couldn't they do it? Well, the disciples go to him privately later and they ask him that very question. They say, Lord, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus has a simple answer. It's because of your little faith. Now, some of your translations may say unbelief. I think the New King James says unbelief, but it's literally little faith. And to that, we might respond, what's wrong with little faith? I mean, how much faith is enough faith? Because in the very next verse, he talks about faith the size of a mustard seed. And, and in other places, Jesus talks about childlike faith. Is, isn't that little faith, mustard seed faith, child faith, little faith? Isn't it all the same thing? What, what, what's the problem with little faith? Well, what kind of faith is mustard seed faith? A few chapters back in Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable of the mustard seed. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this little seed that grows into this glorious branchy tree and all the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So mustard seed faith grows from miniature to much. And then what's the faith of a child like? A child's faith begins in simple trust. A child has nothing to do but trust. A childlike faith desires the pure milk of the word, but it grows. It grows to desire the meat of the word. And so when Jesus rebukes their little faith, he's not rebuking mustard seed faith. He's not rebuking a childlike faith. He's rebuking stunted faith, faith that isn't growing, faith 
that's stuck. And the reason that Jesus is righteously frustrated with this is that this isn't the first time he's had to rebuke this in his disciples. How many times has he said, oh, ye of little faith? I'm about to tell you how many times he said, oh, you of little faith. Back in chapter six, Jesus has just called these men to follow him. He warned them, you're not gonna have a place to lay your head. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I don't want you worrying about any of this. What you're gonna eat, what you're gonna drink, what you're gonna wear. He says, don't worry about any of this. If your father in heaven can clothe the grass of the field, how much more will he take care of you, oh, you of little faith? You see, little faith can hold on to something and say thank you for it. Little faith is comfortable with some money in the bank and groceries in the pantry. Little faith is fine, you know, when you're, when you're chewing on a biscuit, when you, when, you, when you got, you know, a chicken leg in your hand, you can say, yeah, I'm pretty happy. This is pretty good. But when there's something you need that you don't have, little faith gets anxious. Little faith falls apart. And there are several examples of this after that. A short time later, they're on a boat in the Sea of Galilee and there's a terrible storm and Jesus is asleep and the apostles go to wake him up because they're panicking and they're saying, oh, save us, we're about to drown, we're about to die. And Jesus says, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea. See, little faith is satisfied when there aren't any waves and there's not any rain, and the sun is shining, and you're sailing, and everything is fine, and I love Jesus, and I trust God, and everything's so good, and I'm full of the Holy Spirit because the sun is shining, and everything's just fine. But when the storm clouds gather, and things start to look really dark and bleak, and you're in a situation that you can't see the way out of, little faith doesn't sustain you through the storm. Not much longer after that, the disciples are on a boat again, without Jesus, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. Peter's little faith gets him out of the boat to go meet Jesus on the water, but it doesn't sustain him because he starts to falter and he sink, and Peter cries out, oh Lord, save me. And Jesus catches him, and what does Jesus say? Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? <laughs> Peter's little faith was fine until he was scared by the waves, and then when he couldn't see how he was going to get through this, he ran out of faith. See, little faith only trusts to the end of human understanding. It only trusts to the end of human resources. When, when human efforts run out, so does little faith. That's where it runs out, at the end of human strength. And the next example of that is when they're worried because they've run out of bread, again, again, and Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, didn't you remember when I fed the 5,000? Didn't you remember when I fed the 4,000? So by, by accounting, this occasion with the demon-possessed boy is the fifth time that Jesus had, has taught them the same lesson. And the difference was in every one of those previous occasions, Jesus was right there to catch them. And even though they were operating in little faith, he delivered them instantaneously. But he wasn't there this time. He was at the top of the mountain. And so when they got in over their head with this boy, they were embarrassed and exposed for their little faith. Now I'm confident that they had tried to heal the boy. I'm sure that they had tried the very same thing that always worked in the past. The father brought the boy and they were bold to say to the boy and to the demon, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus, come out of him. 
And they said that, and nothing happened this time. Nothing, it didn't work. And maybe they tried it again. <clears throat> I command you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, come out of him right now. And it didn't work again. And that, and that was it. That's all, I mean, we tried everything we know how to do. That always worked before, and it didn't work this time. What else can we do? Well, I, I guess that's it. Uh, and they gave up. Little faith gives up. Little faith prays for something. It doesn't happen. Prays again. It still doesn't happen. And then says, well, I guess praying doesn't work. Or little faith tries something, fails, maybe tries again, gets frustrated, angry, upset. It doesn't work again. And says, well, I guess I'm doomed. I guess everything I touch falls apart. Little faith has a lot of quit. And I, I have to think that Jesus put them deliberately in this situation while he was away to demonstrate to them that he is going to physically leave them for good and that they're going to come across complex situations that don't have easy, simple, formulaic solutions. And what they're going to have to do in these situations is not exercise little faith, but they're going to have to exercise mature faith, a growing faith, a mustard seed faith that is patient, a faith that knows how to wait on the Lord. How many times are we told in the scriptures to wait on the Lord? I counted, I did a little Google, 116 times, I believe, we're told to wait on the Lord. And what that means is you're not necessarily going to get everything you need the first time you ask for it. Not every problem is going to be fixed on the first try or the second try, or the 37th try. That's the lesson. We do this with our children. When your babies are first born, you respond immediately to their cries. If they're wet, you change them. If they're hungry, you feed them. If they need to burp, you burp them. You do everything immediately. You give them what they need. But as they grow, as they get older, everything is about learning patience. You have to wait. No, you can't eat that right now. You've got to wait for supper. No, we can't go outside. We've got to wait and do our chores. You've got to wait to start school. Wait till you're old enough to go places without me. Wait to learn how to drive. Wait to leave home. We don't open our presents before Christmas. We've got to wait. Learn how to wait. Childhood is this long lesson in learning how to wait for good things. And so it is with the Lord. Some of you who became Christians as uh, teenagers or young adults or even um, at, at middle age, you might remember when you were a young Christian and you experienced these immediate answers to prayer. When you were a young Christian, you had these amazing evidences of God's providence and there was this refreshing nearness of the Lord. You sensed his presence in your life, but then as you grew, he matured you by making you wait for things, making you learn how to live in faith, learn how to live out past the end of your own resources. Learn how to deal with problems that don't have quick and easy solutions. And then to learn that even prayer itself is not a quick and easy solution, but rather that prayer is about knocking and knocking and asking like the persistent widow in Jesus's parable. You keep calling out how long, like the martyrs in Revelation. You keep praying and praying and praying and singing the Psalms and you keep persevering and you keep trusting and you're faithful with the things you can control. You do the things you have the authority and the power and the duty to do. You conquer the sins in your life that you have been given the power by the Holy Spirit to put to death and you trust that God is going to provide. That's mature faith. 
That is mustard seed faith. That is childlike faith because that grows. Little faith quits. Little faith gives up. And that's what Jesus is rebuking. He says, this kind of prayer does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Did they try that? Now, um, it could very well be that Jesus had been fasting all the way up the mountain and all the way down. And so when he says to this demon, I mean, he's been communing face to face with his father. And so when he comes down the mountain, he says, get out. And the demon leaves, the demon departs. But did they, did they try fasting? It doesn't sound like that. Fasting takes time. Fasting intensifies prayer. Fasting changes us and teaches us how to say no to our appetites. It sharpens our mind. It, it, it drives us to continue seeking and praying and knocking. But little faith is incompatible with all of that. Little faith is incompatible with self-denial. Little faith is incompatible with suffering. And so it's here that Jesus says, look, if, if you've got faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will be moved and nothing will be impossible for you. And later on, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's gonna say this again. And, and I think when he says, ask for this mountain to be thrown into the sea and I'll do it, I think he's specifically talking about the temple mount, uh, specifically where all this persecution and, and suffering is gonna be coming from the temple against the against the church. But here he's standing at the base of Mount Hermon and he says this, what, what kind of prayer is this for mountains to be ripped up and cast into the sea? Well, it's the kind of prayer that's answered in Revelation 8. Remember our study in Revelation where there's this big mountain, uh, the vision that the mountain is ripped up and it's cast into the sea. And that's this image of the old world being decreated, the old world being wrapped up and this new creation coming in with the new heavenly Jerusalem, this, this new city. But this mountain's being ripped up and cast into the sea. This is decreation language. This is, this is language we use in prayer when we ask God to shake things up, to take things down, to flip things over. So, so this isn't a trivial prayer that just asks God to change the physical landscape of the earth. God isn't saying, you know, if you want Mount Mitchell to just be over here instead of over here, then, you know, pray that prayer and watch it happen. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. This is a prayer to ask God to move in judgment against the mountains, against the prevailing authorities and empires that loom like mountains, powers that seem unshakable. They can do whatever they want, and we live in their shadow this is the kind of prayer that God wants us to be praying. It's the kind of prayer he gives us in the Psalms and in other prayers like the Magnificat. When the church is persistent in this kind of prayer, he delivers her from her enemies. So if you, like me, are frustrated by the political, economic, moral landscape of our day, this instruction is for you and for me. Are we praying consistently with mustard seed faith that God is going to move those mountains and cast them into the sea? Or are we just impotently griping in little faith? There's a difference. And so this is what Jesus calls his men to do. Pray with mustard seed faith that God is going to remove these dominions and authorities and powers and, and deliver you. Well, as we've seen before in this study, in this section, uh, we have this turning point in Matthew's gospel. From here on, Jesus is head to, headed to Jerusalem to do the work he's called to do. And Jesus' message takes on a darker tone from here on. Before, he's been talking about the growth of the kingdom and the principles of the kingdom. But now he's talking more about what's going to happen to them when they get to Jerusalem. And, and the weight of what 
is going to happen in Jerusalem is closing in on him. So look at verse, verse 22. Now, when they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. This, this gets darker and darker the closer they get to Jerusalem. And if they're going to get through this with him, they're going to have to grow and they're going to have to mature and they're going to need something stronger than little faith. And then finally, at the end of this chapter, we get this little conversation about taxes. Again, how far and how quickly we have descended from the transfiguration. And now we're talking about taxes. But let's hear what happens. Verse 24. When they come to Capernaum, those who receive the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, yes. And when he come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. A little bit of background. Every male Jew over the age of 20 was required to pay an annual temple tax of two Greek drachmas in the first century. Two Greek drachmas, about two days pay for a working man. Every year you pay two drachmas for the upkeep and the operation of the temple. And so every year the announcement went out, it's temple tax time, and they set up booths and tables in the various towns and villages to collect the tax. And if you didn't make it to the booth to pay your tax, then you had to take your payment down to the temple itself. And if, you did, and if you didn't pay it then, then you could have some property seized, they would sell it, and then uh, they would pay the tax out of that. So in this passage here, it's temple tax time. And one of the tax collectors asked Peter, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter answers, yes. But you can tell it's not sure because it's still a question. I, I think we pay that. I'm not sure. But I'm going to say yes. It's apparent he really doesn't know the answer. When Peter gets home to the house where they're staying, Jesus knows what's on Peter's mind, and he, and he initiates this conversation. What do you think, Peter? Do the king's sons pay taxes or only strangers? And it's obvious. Of course, princes don't pay taxes to their father, the king. That would be circular. The king gives them an allowance, and he pays it right back to his father, the king. That would be circular, and that doesn't make any sense. Of course, other people pay taxes to the royal family. So, so the question is, should Jesus pay a tax to his father for the upkeep of his father's house? He's not obligated to, but Jesus says, you know what, let's do it anyway. Let's pay this tax anyway, lest we offend them. You see, they're, they're in this environment where everybody is looking for something to catch Jesus by, something to accuse him of, something to use against him to demonstrate he's not a faithful son, he's not a true son of Israel, he's a rebellious man. So Jesus says, let's not offend them this time, let's just pay the tax. This is a strategic move of Jesus. In this study of Matthew's gospel, I'm seeing more and more of how Jesus is always in control of the narrative. He doesn't let anybody else control the story. When it's time to do something scandalous, he does it. When it's time to flaunt the onerous tradition of the Jews, he does it. And when it's time to back off, he does that too. He's not gonna get wrapped up into a debate 
over paying taxes. He's not going to be jailed as a tax evader. He's not even going to waste time and energy and emotion on that argument. That's why it's so critical for us to know what's worth spending our time on and what's worth pressing and what's worth just letting go. So Jesus says, we're not, we're not having this debate. We're not messing with this. So he tells Peter, go to the sea, you know, take your fishing rod, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first, and you're going to find a stator. You're going to find a coin that is worth four drachmas. You see, every man owes two, and so Peter's going to find a coin that pays the taxes of both Jesus and Peter. And Jesus says, take that and give it to them for me and for you. And the fish is going to pay our temple tax. It's fascinating that Jesus tells Peter to go do the thing that Peter already does for a living. Peter is a fisherman, and Jesus doesn't say, well, Peter, I need you to go mine in the earth and go find some gold to pay the temple tax. He doesn't say, Peter, I want you to pretend to be a lumberjack and go chop down a tree and a bag of money will fall out from the top of the tree. No, he says, Peter, go do the thing that you're good at, and I will provide for you, just like I always do, through your honest, ordinary labor. That's how I'm going to provide. The resources you need to pay your debt are going to come from your honest, ordinary labor. I told you, Peter, that I was going to take care of you, and this is how I'm going to do it. Now, there isn't going to be a gold coin in the mouth of every fish that you ever catch, but I will always supply your needs through your honest, faithful labor. And even what the devourer takes, even what the taxman takes, I'm going to supply and resupply because you are my sons and you're not strangers. This demonstrates what Jesus was teaching him back with the demon-possessed boy, that God provides when there is no human solution. Uh, go do the thing you know to do, and do it in trust, and wait, and watch, and wait for God to provide. You see, uh, faith is not a feeling in such a way that if you say, well, I've got great faith, that means I've got great wonderful big feelings about God today, that I feel, I feel super great about who Jesus is. But if I've got little faith tomorrow, then that means my feelings are kind of puny. My feelings are kind of weak. Uh, I don't have strong feelings. I have weak feelings. Oh, faith, uh, that's not what faith is. Faith, always think faith is faithfulness. It's lived out. It's acting upon what you know to be true. It's, it's living in obedience to the king who's delivered you, saved you from your sins, and has, has lifted you up to, see, to be seated in the heavenlies with him. It's, it's faithfulness and living based on who you are in Christ. That's what faith is, living in trust, not listening to lies. And so it is it's super easy to live in joy and contentment on the mountaintop when everything is going rather well. It doesn't take great faith to do that. And we are thankful for those times. God has built Sabbath into the creation week. So every week there's a time to pull away and to rest. Vacations are wonderful and, and, and lovely. But it, it's, it's easy to, to sense God's delight and pleasure in worship or on a retreat or at a Christian camp where you can kind of put all the, the worries of daily life behind you. But... We hope in that, that, that we're being pulled away in order to be strengthened and built up because we need strength when we get back to the hard things of ordinary daily life. And for daily life and, and regular world, we need a, a strength uh, and, and a mature, patient faith because these transfiguration moments aren't yet permanent. Sabbath is not yet a permanent state. 
And, and, and so the substance of the Christian faith isn't just about giving you emotional highs and thrills and worship experiences so that you're a permanent resident on this, uh, on this emotional roller coaster. Um, many of you probably had a similar experience to that. Um, as young people, I remember kind of flagging in my faith. I remember uh, getting, getting just super worried about who I was and whether I was really a believer. But then I go to a contemporary Christian music concert. You know, I go see Carmen or Stephen Curtis Chapman. And, and I just, I feel like a million bucks. I feel like, yeah, me and Jesus are like this. And I'd be on fire and I'd get back to school and I'd, I'd lie or I'd lose my temper. I'd act out in anger. And then I felt like maybe I'm not even saved at all. But then I go to a, a youth rally and here I was again, so excited and living, it's like shining all over the place. And then I get back to biology class on Tuesday and it all fell apart again. I felt like maybe I'm not even a Christian. Um, the, the effect of that kind of roller coaster is just to keep you in little faith mode. But, but the Christian faith, as it's articulated in God's word, is, is for these days when you're, when you're gutting it out, plowing through. Yes, when everything is falling apart, when you're disappointing yourself, when nobody is getting along and everybody is upset about something in your house and there are, there are problems all around you that don't have easy solutions. The, the big concern is not about what kind of Christian you are when everything is going great. The, the question is, what kind of Christian are you when everything is turning to garbage? And to be the Christian that says, you know what, I really don't know how this is getting fixed. I don't see how this is going to be resolved. I don't see a way out of this, but I'm not giving up. I'm not bailing out. I'm not using this turmoil as an excuse to sin. I'm not going to comfort myself with sin in my anxiety and in my, and in my fear. I'm going to be even more faithful, even more resolute. I'm going to fast and pray and fast and pray and sing the Psalms and wait and wait and wait for God to send his deliverance for this provision that I need. See, that is the mustard seed faith that Jesus calls us to. That's the faith that moves mountains. That's the faith that drives out demons. That's the faith that shakes up the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this word, and we thank you for uh, the, the, the faith that has been delivered to us. And so we ask that you grow us up. Don't allow us to be stunted in little faith, but have a faith that matures like the mustard seed into a tree, like the faith of a child that grows up into a strong, mature faith. Father, we pray that you would grant us this and, and for our children as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.